Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. And today, each one of us is carving a stone, erecting a column, or cutting a piece of stained glass in the construction of something much bigger than ourselves. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are going to be going back to one of our earlier episodes and fleshing out a town. In episode 5, we were talking about introducing fallen and forgotten civilizations into your game world and how to tie them in and how different time frames removed from the fall would affect your timeline and your story differently. And we had talked about revisiting a couple of the scenarios that we had come up with. And so today we're going to be doing that. We're going to be going back to the earlier time frame one. So it's the mining town that we had talked about. And we're going to take that nebulous mining town that we were just talking about loosely and sort of fleshing it out a little bit and hopefully making something that we can actually run with. So I'm kind of excited this week to do this. This definitely ventures more into world building than homebrew for us. But world building has so many possibilities and so many options. And really, it's a great chance to just kind of let your imagination run wild. This gives us a lot of different chances to kind of play and tinker with stuff. When you're homebrewing something, particularly like content like characters, it's really good to have a place to put them. So one of my hobbies is I do some silversmithing and I do some stone cutting and some lapidary work. And I initially started just by like polishing rocks with a drill or tumbler and stuff like that. My problem was is I'd come up with these really pretty stones or these really pretty set pieces, but I had nothing to put them in or no way to display them. And you kind of get the same thing with homebrew is if you get this really awesome homebrew character, but you don't have a place to put it in or a setting or a story to go with it, it's really hard to find something to do with these little homebrew pieces that you create. So this kind of gives you a baseline and a sandbox to set your thing in to see how well it works. I like to use the square rectangle metaphor where all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. All world building is homebrew, but not all homebrew is world building. Because whenever you're building a world, everything that you're throwing into this world is homebrew. This is all coming from your head. I mean, even if it's pillaged mostly from published resources, if you are coming up with anything new, that's homebrew. And so world building is homebrew, just a tangent sort of coming off of it to a more macro scale. It's your archetype of homebrew. It's planet homebrew. Just a little bit of a refresher on what we had. The story background that we'd come up with was there was a famine which had caused a mass exodus. And I think that we had decided that the famine was a result of an insect infestation. And so there's no food, so everyone leaves. And the premise behind this town is that a neighboring kingdom were a large contingent of the displaced population settled is funding an effort to reseed portions of this kingdom in the hopes of getting all of these displaced peoples out of their country and ostensibly returning them home but just to get them out in this particular spot they were establishing this outpost because there was a valuable natural resource a valuable mineral resource that they wanted to exploit when we talked about this i kind of had the purview that the neighboring kingdom were sending the people home but under a sphere of influence and so they had control of what was going in and what was going out so it was almost like they were setting up a colony or a puppet state where this one is so yeah they were sending the people back but they were still maintaining a very tight control of the area as well right 
And we had established that the reason why they were able to do this was it was still fairly close to the border. And so they were able to simply ship food in to the people who were living there as opposed to having to take the time to reclaim the land and actually reestablish agriculture there. So the people who are there working in this mine are really living off of the supplies that this other kingdom is sending in. And that was going to be part of the tension that we were establishing, one of the secondary plot points that we were going to be bringing in. So, so this was our earlier group. We had determined that this area had been abandoned for somewhere between 30 and 50 years, 30 and 70 years, something like that, correct? Yeah, I think it was about 50, 60 years, somewhere in that range. <laughs> so that gives you a lot of options, too, within the town. There's still going to be some structures standing, obviously, because people kind of left. Obviously, there's going to be some natural disasters or whatnot. A lot of these structures are still going to be standing, though many of them are going to be ruined, depending on what they were built out of, whether they were stone or lumber or anything like that. So even in the area, it'll give you a lot of places to explore. That's not necessarily within the mine, which we'll most definitely get to as well. A lot of places for like bandit camps or hideouts. This will probably wind up having a fairly significant, almost like a fallout feel to a point where you kind of have... Everyone's living in whatever ramshackle kind of buildings that they were able to quickly repair or preserve. I don't know about that because we had talked about the wilderness retook the area. And so you have 50, 60 years of unchecked wild growth around here. You're going to have lumber that they can source locally. They're going to have an incentive to bring in building materials to house these people because they need them to work. I was under the impression that this has already been established. I mean, it can be still fairly new in its establishment, but I'm not thinking this as this is the first way of going in to build this place. I'm thinking this has been established and maybe got a couple years under its belt. Okay, and that would still work, but you still have your surrounding countryside where there's still going to be a good point of surface exploration and discovery as well. That's more what I was going for is you have the area where even in the old fallouts where you were kind of going from someplace that was established, you still had like the old settlements that were kind of forgotten or ramshackle in between. That was a good area to explore, find information, maybe scavenge for supplies or better equipment or treasure, something along those lines. Right. I just get the feeling that this is more of a West Coast fallout than an East Coast fallout kind of feel. One, two, and New Vegas to an extent. So the concept that we're going to be using today is one that I learned of from a Dale Kingsmill video a while back, and I'm going to put a link to that in on Twitter whenever we get this out. It's a concept that she went into some detail on, something that she learned in high school, and it's got a fun little name. It's the Sperm Principle, and that stands for Social Political economic, religious, and military. So those are the five aspects that every sizable medieval-style village or town or even more modern towns are going to have. So you have a social, which is where do people go and what do they do just to have fun when they're not working? How do they socialize together? Political, who's in charge of the town? How are they in charge of the town? How do they run the town? Who has a say in how the town is run? Economic. How do the people in this town make money? What do they spend their money on? Religious. That's fairly obvious. Where do they go to deal with their spiritual needs? And then military is who's in charge of security? 
in a more modern setting, this would be your police force. This would be law enforcement. But in a medieval fantasy style setting, this is your guard. This is your militias. This is anybody who is providing security. While Dale had brought that up, she talked about she used this for her medieval studies and she uses this for her games. I think this actually applies even to a modern settlement or any settlement, really. These things all kind of apply fairly consistently. The author, Tom Clancy, had something kind of similar. I read a lot of Clancy books in college because I had organic chemistry labs and they're mostly here, set this reaction up and wait three hours. So I got to read a lot of books all at once. But in one of his books, I think it was some of all feeders, he talks about the actions or the motives behind a group or any kind of agent or anything like that. And he used the rice theory, which was religion, ideology, culture, and economics. And so that sounds very similar to the sperm theory as well, where all of those things tie in. And all of those things will motivate a person. They will give a person a reason for doing something. If they're going to, you know, go here or there, that's going to cover pretty much why. Between those two things, you can really cover most of your world building bases really easily. Right. And what you're bringing up, it's more of a cultural interpersonal sort of thing, whereas this is more of an establishment What's the word I'm looking for? I guess establishment is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, actually, that fits really well. Because these are the entities which provide these things rather than the abstract concepts. I still found them to be very similar, and they really are. And again, it just depends on how wide of a view you want to take. Right. They do work together pretty well. So let's go ahead and start building on this town. I'm going to give you the hardest part. Let's name the thing. Let's name the thing. Okay. Absolutely terrible at naming people, villages, items. You'll notice most of the items we come up in our homebrew for our homebrew stuff. I have a really hard time coming up with names. So that definitely requires a much more creative mind than mine. Okay. So I'm thinking that this particular place is going to have a callback to some notable person in the fallen nation's history. Okay. So we're dealing with miners. So I'm assuming we're looking at gnomes, dwarves. Probably primarily gnomes and dwarves. Uh, there's there's probably going to be, because I think we were stating that it was a, actually we never really talked about race, but if we want to put it in my homebrew world, if we wanted to shoehorn it in, there's a nation that I've got called Escalonia, which is, it's where the dragonborn come from. It's not so much a nation as it is a loose confederation of city-states. And so it wouldn't be a stretch to say that one of these city-states suffered a calamity and a neighboring city-state is working to reseed this area for their own benefit because this is the sort of thing that happens between the city-states all the time. So if that's the case, then you're going to have a fairly substantial dragonborn population here. Now, the question is here going with this naming, you said you wanted to name it after a person of the village. Now, if this is a mining area, a mining town or village that was initially before they moved out, was it dragonborn that were in the area that started mining or was it dwarven or gnomish area that were mining and then it had changed hands and now it's changed hands again? Um, It could be either. Or they could just take it over and, hey, we're renaming this because that's never happened in history, not even once. That's why we have all those wonderful shows in New Amsterdam. So we're going to have to figure out who our person is theoretically, in order to name this town. Now, again, I have said I'm terrible at naming things. And I am terrible at naming things. That being said, 
there's an older song I like that's kind of a steampunky song, and I forget the name of the song in itself. But the name of the town was Verdigree Patina, which is actually kind of a cool name for a mining town, particularly since in this case everything was very steampunk. But again, depending on what they're mining, that would actually be a workable name for no, the town. Verdigree, Verdigree would definitely be a pretty good name. Let's go with the Verdigree? I'm okay with that. All right, we're naming the town Verdigree, folks. And I've got my one good creative role in the day, so there we go. <laughs> And for those of you playing at home who don't know exactly what verdigree is, it is the green oxidation that you get on copper whenever it's exposed to the elements. Right. So if you think of the Statue of Liberty, that green color, that's actually a verdigree. It can be used as a protective coating. It can show signs of age, which would work great for this village. It can also be used as a cloth or paper dye or pigment. So it's actually got a lot of uses as well, besides having a really cool color or just being a sign that things are getting old. It's also pretty toxic if you burn it, so don't do that. Do not inhale the green fumes. All right, so we have our town of Verdigree. So we've established that this is a mining town. We have established that it is a pseudo-colony reestablished by Diaspora. We are going to have a large dragonborn population and a notable dwarf and gnome population because of the mines. There's probably going to be a decent population of the other more notably brutish, I hesitate to use that term, but the half-orcs and your goliaths and your more muscular types. Again, not liking to use the term, but your less civilized types, I guess, maybe, perhaps. Uh, perhaps. And again, that it's a bad overarching theme for a race, but that's kind of how they're written up right now, which we still right. need to... Less refined. There we go. That's the word we're looking for. There's probably going to be a decent goblin population here, just because of the way that I have goblinoids in my world. No kobolds. There's not going to be kobolds because of kobolds live on one island that they can't really get off of in my world. But there's probably going to be a decent goblin population in this town. So right now I'm getting the feel this kind of has very much like a Old West feel to it. I'm liking this so far. What kind of nature setting surrounding do we have? Is it going to be wooded? Is it going to be forest? Is it going to be barren? I think it's going to be new growth forest. It's going to be very dense. It's going to be probably primarily deciduous. There's going to be a lot of underbrush. There's going to be a lot of game. So there's going to be a decent number of apex predator types. So you're going to have lots of bears and big cats and other fantasy beasties that eat bears and big cats. That makes sense. You're going to have wolves. You're probably going to have things like bullets. You know what I think would be a really fun thing? and I, I was going to mention this as we got more underground. Since we said this area was overrun by a plague, largely due to a insect invasions form of some sort. What about some foremen? Foremen? Yeah, um, the ant people. I mean, we could do that as sort of a story arc kind of deal as them being down in the mines. I was thinking that they could probably even have a couple settlements or outposts kind of interspersed around the city. Maybe not in the city itself because it's been cleared out, but they know they're there. And they're kind of interspersed almost like an insurgent population at this point. I mean, I wasn't thinking this as being giant insect sort of deal. I was thinking right. more like a locust swarm comes in and eats everything. I was too, but I figured that would be a nice little tie-in. And again, they could be maybe under. Okay, we can totally do that. All right, so we'll just sort of keep that in the back of our minds as we were starting this. So we've got our surroundings. We named our town Verdigree. We kind of know who is there. I think at this point we start working on the sperm. Yeah. 
as messy as that sounds. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to start off with social. So what do these people do outside of work in the mines? So you're going to have the miners, of course, who are working the mines. And then you're going to have the caravan folk who are going to be bringing supplies in and hauling ore out. And you're going to have the guards who are going to be keeping the wildlife out of town. And now with these foremen, they're going to be securing the mine. They're going to be protecting the town from hostiles. They're going to be securing the roads to cut down on banditry. Because anytime you have trade caravans that run on a reliable schedule, you're going to have people in this lawless zone who are going to try and take advantage of that. So... I mean, the obvious thing is there's going to be a tavern of some sort. There's going to be somewhere for these miners to go and have a drink when they get off shift. But I think that's almost too easy. There is. I'd say the other very obvious thing would be there's going to be a lot of people trying to rebuild. So reclaim what they can, try to reestablish again, because they are trying to rebuild or reestablish the city. So again, you're going directly into your town looking for old artifacts, maybe old buildings, kind of like a historical reclamation. Maybe going to the surrounding areas trying to find old signposts, old boundary markers, anything from historical people from the town that you can kind of bring back so you can kind of get a sense of history what this town once was. Okay, I'm still trying to gather what you're trying to get to here with the social aspect. Well, it's like a historical society, so people are going to go out and they're going to be looking. Because again, they're trying to come back, so that is the social aspect. It's kind of their history and their culture is their social aspect, and they're trying to rebuild it. Okay. Think of like when the Jews got Palestine back and they started going through and trying to figure out where old settlements were, which groups belonged where, which clans were together, which groups went here, which groups went there. I'm trying to think of some other examples where people had returned to a homeland. I kind of see it with some of the Native American tribes where they're, this is where we used to go. This was a religious area. This was for hunting. This was a social area. This was, you know, where we migrated in summer and winter, things like that. Again, this is who we are. They're looking for their identity and history. All right, and that does give us a plant for a hook to start adventuring because these are probably going to be outsiders coming in. Probably somebody who had some tie to the court of this city-state that is defunct. Possibly, though. Honestly, if we're dealing with gnomes and dwarves and we're only 70 years out, you still have a fairly solid memory of the area. And so, again, you could still have some clan issues. You could have some old, like, Hetfield-McCoy type things going on. Well, this was our land. No, this was our area. Back and forth through there. Again, noble courts, who did what, which areas had rights or baronies or trade routes or whatever. Right, but what I'm getting at is this will be something where someone affiliated with the court is setting this up and hiring people to go out into the wilds to find these markers so that they can reconstruct maps so that there is a neutral arbiter that can say, this property belongs to this family, that property belongs to that family. This is where the property line is, because the ruling body of this city-state is going to want that so that they can know who to tax. And this would definitely be something run probably by the Dragonborn government that is sponsoring everything at this point, trying to act as an arbiter. And that too can Honestly, also lead... I, I think that this is going to be somebody from the government in absentia. This is going to be someone from the fallen city-state. I don't think this is going to be somebody from the one that's doing the sponsorship. 
Okay, I could see that. I would argue that it would be, though, particularly if they're going to use this as a sphere of power, because this way they kind of control who gets the good areas versus not, so they can use it to buy favors or guarantee loyalty type things. But you're also going to have the people who were from this fallen city, they're descendants of the ruling class of the city-state, and they are trying to cement their authority over this land, saying, no, this is our ancestral home this is ours we are claiming this exactly and that's why i would see that because the dragonborn or the sponsoring power would actually be using that and they would be trying to act and i use the term act very loosely as a quote quote neutral party so they know that this dysphoria is coming back they know there's going to be clan wars there's going to be divisions so they're going to act as this neutral party to kind of help resolve these things overarching but again they are using that also to cement their amount of influence in the area for the future as well Oh, and I don't doubt that there's going to be actors from both parties involved in this endeavor because there's too much at stake to not. So I had an idea for a very localized social thing. Because you see a lot of depictions of this in fantasy and science fiction literature, you saw this in the Battlestar Galactica reboot, this concept of basically having a fighting pit. Where if you've got beef with somebody, you call them out, you meet at the pit, you slug it out, and when you're done, you're done. After you're done fighting, all grief between the parties is dropped, and you just carry on like civilized individuals. And so I'm wanting to call this the pit, and this is going to be where they dump all the dross, this is where they dump all of the all of the stone that happens to come out with the ore... It's the refuse pit, and if miners have a beef with one another, rather than having them fight it out in the mine where somebody could get hurt or die or they distract from their surroundings and result in a cave-in or form an attack or some other catastrophe, if you have a problem with somebody, you take it to the pit after you get off shift and you settle it. I will support this on one condition. Okay. It needs to be run or managed by a beefy, high-level dwarven fighter named Judge Judy. <laughs> this isn't the people's court. But it's not. But it's not. I mean, really? <laughs> Why not? Why shouldn't it be? This really does sound kind of like a small claims trial by combat. I like it. And again, that is a good way to kind of do some local settling, some beef settling. We can do that. She would be a paladin. She wouldn't be a fighter. Paladin as well. That works. She's just this crusty old paladin. No, I like it. But yeah, definitely, like I said, like a small claims or like you said, any kind of beef or this was a way perhaps they got around establishing vendetta or long lasting blood feuds was they try to settle it this way first, obviously. I'd say it seems to largely work. Well, I mean, and it's to keep the mines themselves safe and to keep the mines themselves running. Right. So there could actually be that if there's any fighting within the mines, the mines are absolutely declared neutral ground. So any kind of fighting at all within the mines is strictly punished. Because yes. if you have beef, you take it to the pit. I like that. That sets up a decent system of law in the town as well. It's not really a system of law per se. It's just a common understanding. It's well, if you declare areas neutral ground, and now there's a heavier punishment for violating that neutral ground, but there is an appropriate area to settle scores, as it were. That does kind of set up a basis of a system of law, because now you have, you go here, not here, 
And if you violate that code, then obviously there's stricter punishment and it's more generalized by society. It's very accepted. I see what you're getting at there. And that tips us into our P word here. Yeah. Political. P word is for political. So we need to have some sort of political entity here. There's probably going to be a miners guild. This, I mean, we're not going to have a political entity. We're going to have several political entities in this. Absolutely. There's going to be at least two or three. I don't think that we're going to establish the whole array of political entities that we're going to have in this town, but there are definitely going to be two or three major players. And the first is going to be a miners guild of some sort. Someone who is representing the people who are going down into the mines. And they're probably the ones who established the pit in the first place. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously a guild's a guild, so it's not quite a miners union. But the guild itself, again, as Ian said, was established to protect and look over the miners to a degree. So any kind of beef or upset that the miners have, they're going to bring to the guild and the guild would address. At this point, it would be your city people. So now you have your people that are running the town. You also have the dragonborn state that's kind of overseeing things. So I think if we look at the people that are over Vertigree itself at this time, again, we talked a lot of dwarf and gnomish areas, so you're going to have those clans and entities forming within their own right, so you could probably have two or three of each of those, I'd imagine. Possibly. What I was thinking was you're going to have, for lack of a better term, the company. So you're going to have the guild who they act administratively over the miners that go into the ground. They determine how long a work shift is, how many shifts there are, who gets what shifts. They're essentially going to act as a union, but they're acting in the interest of the miners, not so much for the safety of the miners, but for the productivity of the miners. And then you have the company. And then you have the company who owns the mine, and their focus is on the profit. Their focus is on how much material comes out and is shipped and how much that is sold for. Your Southwest Virginia showing. Maybe a little bit. Yeah, so again... We we live in coal mining country. Yes, we do. The company owned these towns. Very much so. And yeah, so as Ian had mentioned, those that are listening, Ian grew up in this area. I'm a transplant, but we are in Northeast Tennessee, Southwest Virginia. And this was very much a thing. If you look at the old mining companies from the late 1800s, early 1900s, even the mid 1800s, this very much was the company owned the town and everything around it in the mine. Everyone worked for the company and the company was the end all be all. Yep. And so this provides two entities who work together but don't necessarily like each other and there's going to be a lot of conflict between the guild and the company think of the union strikes in west virginia coal mines in the i think it's like the 1870s 1880s when they called in the pinkertons yeah that's the sort of tension that we've got going on here Probably a little less because they are at least nominally cooperative. They aren't fully adversarial. They're not going on strike for not getting what they want. But the guild is very much focused on the miners, whereas the company is focused on the mine. Right. I think even a modern example that's happened earlier this year in 2020, 
but one of the nearby-ish mines in Kentucky actually had closed down and filed for bankruptcy. And in doing so, they hadn't paid payroll to their miners in like two or three months. But they still had several train loads full of coal they were getting ready to ship out. So the miners had actually gathered together and blocked off the rail line so the trains couldn't move until the company finally wrote them some checks to pay the back pay that they were owed. So yeah. that would be kind of between your, your company and your, your mining guild. So that's, again, you can go back through some older history. You can go back to even modern to like even up to a couple months ago. And this kind of thing still happens. So that resonates very well with kind of how you're going to build up this town. Yeah, and that does give us a good feel for just how rough and tumble this town is going to be. We are not drinking... Well, some of the clans might be drinking tea from saucers, and there might be a few elves in there. But yes, this is largely going to be unrefined, kind of rough. This is your Old West Frontier Town. This is Carson City. So we've got the guild. We've got the company. We're probably going to have a provisional governor, too. And this is going to be where your... We're just going to call them the Heritage Society for now. That's working title. But they're going to be affiliated with the provisional governor and that can be where a tension between the fallen and the sponsor city-states comes in because the sponsor city-state is absolutely going to be appointing this governor this is going to be their mouthpiece and the people who are actually hiring out the adventurers to do all this surveying and to find all of these things, those are the people who are going to be representatives of the government in absentia. That seems perfectly reasonable, and I like that a lot. And that provides us a bit of tension there, too, because they're probably going to be both in the same place, because this is a small town. There's not going to be a whole lot of structures here, I don't think. And so the governor's mansion, so to say, is probably also going to be the administrative building for the town. So it's where they're going to have town meetings. It's where you're going to go for any official legal reasons. It's where the people who are coming in have to go in and declare what their stores are whenever they bring stuff in. They have to come in with their manifest and say, I have this much grain, this much booze, this much meat, you know, and go down the checklist. And then someone from their office goes out and checks the carts and makes sure that all of that stuff is there so that they can get paid. Totally like one of your Eastern American colonies or one of your Caribbean colonies, where you have your governor that's been established by England, France, Spain, Dutch, whatever. They are quote, quote, local and they are running the area, but they are definitely absolutely under the sway and purveyance of the home territory, whatever that may be. Right. So, and I think that does pretty well for establishing political in this particular town. If we get going too much further down this rabbit hole, we'll end up with a five-hour episode. This gives you good, and like, you can have factions broken up throughout all of these. So you could have factions within the guild, you could have factions within the company, factions within the governorship. Obviously, the, what are we naming this dragon village, the dragonborn village? The Verdigree? No, the actual sponsoring we're just referring to them as the sponsors for now so you can have some factions within the sponsors of which they think should happen we would leave that more to the dm or whoever you decide to pick this up and run it but you could actually break this down a lot further and you could insert a party into any one of these groups super easily and you can have more than one of these groups offer jobs to the party and then the party has to decide which jobs they're going to take which factions they're going to create favor with, which factions they're going to piss off. And, you know, because if they try and dip into too many pots, 
they're going to end up upsetting everyone and then no one wants to work with them. So let's go ahead and move on to our next one. E, economic. Obviously, if we have a company, there's going to be a company store. This is where all of the stuff that is brought in is brought to the company store and then the miners have to use their credits, whatever they get, their pay for working in the mine to buy the stuff from the company store. We had already established that this is going to have a bit of a markup because of the sponsors shipping this stuff in to support this colony. That is something that we actually talked about way back. And your foodstuffs, your food items are going to have probably the most significant markup because that is, in fact, what's being shipped in. There's a lot of usable supplies and materials that can be scavenged around or collected, but food is going to be really the scarce thing to come across. And we had discussed sort of in passing that one of the potential quest plot lines that you could go into here is someone local is trying to establish agriculture in the area so that they have a competition for foodstuffs and how the company is not going to be real happy about that. And that leads into if you have a market, then you have to have a black market as well. Right. You're going to have a black market for quote unquote illicit goods. You're going to have things that they don't stock at the company store. They're going to have things that, oh, this is something that was supposed to go to the governor's mansion that got misplaced. Some sort of spirits, maybe. I think the big thing you're overlooking, and we need to ask this question too, if there is a mine, everything in the mine should be accounted for, but I guarantee you there are gems or ore or something that's going to work their way into pockets, and maybe those pockets buy a little something extra on the market or not on the market. So that'll be something that you'd need to establish as well. Well, we have to establish what is the currency of the black market, because I don't think that it's going to be... I mean, it could simply be work credits or whatever they have for the mine. I don't think that they're going to actually pay the miners in coin. Just going off of the historical example, the company gives you vouchers worth so much at the company store, and you go to the company store to buy what you need. Right. That was one of the real big strangleholds that the company had over the miners. Walmart actually had proposed something like this, I think, two or three years ago, and there was a really big backlash. But Walmart was going to give all of their employers, it was like a 20% raise if they decided to get paid in quote-quote Walmart gift cards instead of actual checks. And some people accepted it, but again, there was a large backlash against that too, because historically, that does not end too well for the workers. No, it really doesn't. And that was one of the driving forces behind the union efforts, especially in the mines. But because the miners, we're just going to say it, because the miners aren't getting paid in coin, so they're not getting gold coins dropped into their hand at the end of their shift saying, you brought out this many tons of ore, here's your pay. They're going to be getting these vouchers that are going to be taken to the company store to be exchanged for goods. Those vouchers could be used on the black market. I think those vouchers can use the black market a bit. I think the black market itself, since we have people coming in from the sponsors and probably from some other nearby city-states, might actually want to trade in coin. So I think that would actually be a good way to do that. So your black market's actually worked in coin. You could actually at some point maybe find some that are willing to trade coin for a lesser amount of your company script, whatever that may be, maybe like at 70% or 50%. Right. I was going to say that this would be a good way to have sort of a money changer sort of deal to get coin so that you as a miner would have coin 
available to you. Might have, have Simon the Money Changer. But they would also be dealing in the rarities, the rare oddities that you're going to be getting out of the mine. So you're going to have a, a market for uncut gems. That's probably going to be the biggest one. That was actually going to bring up my next question. Because I've been very excited about this, and it's something that you haven't brought up yet. And I'm like, how have you not thought of this yet? What are we mining? I think we had discussed this, and it had come up that this was a mithril mine. Okay, that works. I understand that technically, according to D&D lore, mithril is an alloy and you don't mine it. But the two of us have played enough World of Warcraft. Mithril is an ore that you mine out of the ground. That's just how we're going to roll with it. Mithril is an ore in D&D, and they've changed something because, again, going back to the old Salvatore novels, some of your Dragonlance novels, there were mithril mines. Okay. I was under the impression that it is an alloy of some sort. It may be that mithril that is used in weapons and armor is an alloy because they have to alloy it with something in order to work it. That may be That's what it probable. is. Uh, I, I could be completely misremembering this, but... I remember reading somewhere fairly recently that Mithril is an alloy, but we had stated in the previous episode that this is a Mithril mine. Yeah, we determined that Mithril is a mined metal, and so that makes a lot of sense that you could probably throw in a table, throw some DM dice rolls to see if whoever finds some uncut gems as well, which would be, again, not too far of a stretch. So definitely a black market for uncut gems. Or even just if you found like a particularly good vein of Mithril and tried to smuggle some of it out versus giving it all to the company. I think that it would be difficult to do because you're going to end up having a situation probably kind of like the diamond mines in Africa where they're going to be doing a full search of your person, a full search of your person to see if you're trying to smuggle anything out. Oh yeah, that makes total sense. And yet you still hear stories about African miners who smuggle out five, six, seven carat raw diamonds as well. It does happen. Maybe you could have like a contract to smuggle out a certain amount of ore because people want to test it or experiment with it or do whatever, or they just want to get it for some reason outside. Maybe this is the only mithril mine in an area and somebody wants to set up some sort of competition for the company. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could play with that. I think that the raw gems, though, the uncut gems, is going to be the strongest contender for an item of value that is coming out of this mine that isn't necessarily going to be so heavily looked for. Right. Other black market things, again, we have a historical society, but maybe somebody else has some interest in these historical items. That the historical society wants to put a claim on all of them. So if you find a talesman, a signet, whatever, you could take it to buyer B instead. Again, we also talked about food. So if you find out someone's hunting for game or growing a crop, then you could definitely sell some different kind of food or maybe a higher quality or healthier type food than what you can find at the company store. And that would definitely hold a premium as well. Right. Fresh produce is definitely going to be a premium here. So I think that's pretty well does it. I don't know as if there's going to be a whole lot else. I mean, the company is going to be the primary economic power here. They're going to be bringing the trade goods in. They're going to be shipping the ore out. There's not going to be any money changing hands between the mine and the caravan because that's all the company. Right. They are definitely keeping as tight of a lid on things as they can. Yeah, they're going to be as ironclad as they can with regards to how this mine is run. And then you have the black market, which is going to be for everything else. 
And I'm going to guess that it's probably going to be one of those, this is the worst kept secret in town. Everybody knows it's happening. Everybody knows where you can go to get this stuff. It's just that you're never seen there. It's like Baptists going to the liquor store. You just, you're never seen there. I can kind of see that. I kind of see like the old 1920s mob thing too, where if someone starts digging in too deep, an accident might happen. Oh yeah. It's going to start with, if somebody is causing trouble, somebody is going to call them out into the pit and they're just going to give them an absolute beat down. And they're going to tell them, this is what you're getting if you're going any deeper. It's going to be worse. I don't even see it as far as like, you can have that with the pit where people could call it out. But if someone gets really in depth, even your neutral areas, an accident might happen. And because the black market's so prevalent, because the company has such a lockdown on things, that people might be willing to turn a blind eye or ignore or accidentally not see something. Oh, yeah. All right. So the next one is the religious aspect. So we have a predominantly dragonborn society. In my world, Escalonia is primarily worshippers of Bahamut. Big surprise. There is a... I'd have to go and look it up because I can't remember the name of it for the life of me because I don't run any games there. But there is a city in the center of Escalonia where there is an aspect of Bahamut, a gold dragon who is an aspect of Bahamut who lives there. So Bahamut is very prevalent in this world. So there will be some presence of the clergy of Bahamut in this town. But being a mining town with a understandably large dwarf and or gnome population there's probably going to be a chapel to moradin and there's probably going to be a chapel to garl Glittergold somewhere but i also wanted there to be an aspect that falls outside of your standard religious practice because this area is choked up with wildlife i want there to be a druid's grove nearby oh there has to be absolutely we definitely need I'm not going to say the problem, because that's not the word I want to use, but all of the gods that you've largely picked up tend to be lawful good. I think Carl Glittergold might be neutral. I can double check. I think he's more chaotic. I think he's chaotic good. He's a trickster god. Okay, yeah, so that works. But we also need some merchant gods in the area as well, because again, that commerce from that company, I think would be pushing the lawful good of Bahamut just a touch. I could see them being lawful neutral or chaotic neutral. As the company, even delving possibly oh, into no, evil. The, the company is full-on lawful neutral. Their whole MO is establishing the profit of this mine, and they are going to milk it for every copper that it's worth. Lawful neutral, and I would say they are probably pushing the limits of lawful evil, maybe even. There are probably some aspects where you can argue that they're shifting closer to that lawful evil, yeah. Definitely need some sort of merchant god. They're, they're certainly not lawful nice, but I don't know. I don't think that there's actually going to be any established mercantile god here. I don't know that the company is going to... I don't know if the representatives of the company are going to go so far as to bring a god of commerce in. I think that it's primarily going to be something that the miners do. You might have some god of war or some god of law that the mercenaries or the guards that are keeping the town safe, someone that they adhere to, so a small chapel, a small shrine that they pray at. But I think that the primary religious facet here is going to be with regards to the miners. 
Okay. And I am perfectly okay with that. And too, because you have the sponsor, so you are going to have some aspect of Bahamut in there as well. Absolutely. That is going to be the chapel that is attached to the governor's mansion that is funded. The governor's cousin is the priest that is coming in to run this chapel. Okay, I could see that. And I could definitely see the money changers being a little bit more associated with glitter gold. Oh, yeah. So I don't think that religion is going to be as strong a facet as the others in this particular town, mainly because it is a frontier town and your day-to-day survival is going to be the most important thing. And so while it is there, because there's a certain aspect of living in danger that requires a certain amount of spiritual maintenance in a lot of cases, I don't think that the religious side of this town is going to have a very strong hold on anything. Probably not. I just, I don't feel like that is the case. But that brings us up to our fifth and final, which is the military aspect. And again, military, not necessarily being soldiers, but being security. So you're going to have, obviously you're going to have guards that are employed by the company. So people who are in charge of maintaining law and order within the town, keeping the hazards of the surrounding wilds out of the town to keep the town secure and keeping the roads secure so that the caravans can get into and out of town. Reasonable. There's also going to be some sort of security like we talked about within the mine. Though the mine has largely been declared a neutral ground, there are going to be people there to make sure it stays neutral, to make sure things don't get smuggled out of packs of holding or pockets or anything like that. And where you brought up the foreman, there are going to be beasties living in the mines. So there are going to be people who need to secure the mine and kill the beasties to allow the mine production to keep going. Also, the sponsors would be able to bring in a sizable military force if it were to happen, but it would probably take a few days, maybe even up to a week to get there. So it could get there, but slowly. And they would have to muster it to send it. And that's not, you don't just gather up a whole bunch of guys on a moment's notice and send them marching seven days. Yeah, go off that way. There's a whole lot of preparation that is involved in something like that. So even if they needed to do it, it would take them two or three days to get everything together just to be able to send all of these guys off. I think another issue, too, is if you have this big shiny gem kind of coming up out of nowhere, even if it takes a little bit longer for another neighboring entity to try to push it, maybe it's low-hanging fruit, maybe it's worth an outside grading area saying it's worth trying to take over now, it's worth the risk, so you could actually have a third or fourth party militarily coming in as well on top of all of that. Right, and we did establish that because of the collapse of the overarching government within this particular city-state, the area around the border with the neighboring city-states has become sort of a lawless area. And so... There is going to be banditry there. There are going to be people who are going to set up just inside the border and are going to take advantage of, well, are they actually going to chase me all the way back in across the border? Because we have established that there is a government in absentia who is still establishing that they are in control here and they might see a large-scale military incursion as an invasion and raise alarms accordingly. 
And another group we need to address also is if there is, in fact, a thriving black market, then that black market's going to have some secret keepers and muscle as well. Right. And it's not too far out of the realm of possibility to say that they are probably part of the established company security. Very possible, yes. I mean, the captain of the company guard being in charge of the black market because he's going to get a cut. That would make a lot of sense. Huge amount of sense. I think largely we go through, and this kind of gives you the nuts and bolts for this Verdigree town that we've created. We haven't talked a whole lot about the surrounding area or the ecology of the area, and that could be something that could be addressed a bit. Like we said, it's probably going to be new growth forest or or woodlands. We do have the Druids Grove nearby, so that kind of gives you a hint. But really, this has given you the nuts and bolts of the establishment, how this town is going to function. If you want to go back to our previous couple episodes, now you can start drawing up some NPCs and dropping them in places. So now you've got this little, almost like the, what was the duplex Legos with the boats where you could just plug the people in because they kind of fit in like everything else. So yeah, and we have actually established a few people. We have as well. A few NPCs. There is a governor. There's someone who's acting as sort of a historical society. We're calling them the Heritage Foundation for now. So they're going to be nominally at odds with one another. You know, there's going to be someone who's running the company store. There's going to be someone in charge of the company guards. There's going to be at least one major representative for the Miners Guild. So, yeah, we've got several NPCs, just their existence placed. We don't have the actual NPCs fleshed out. But, yeah, that is something that we have done. (laughs) We did a thing. Oh, and we have Judge Judy. I forgot about Judge Judy. And that's the thing about... Particularly with world building and homebrewing, it's as you work on one piece, it kind of inspires another piece. And it's almost like knitting, where suddenly these pieces start interlocking together. And you find that you've created more and more, even without really trying or putting a lot of effort into things. And like I said, these things do kind of tend to spring up. And eventually, they almost pick up a life of their own, which is really fun to watch. And one of the wonderful things is you can just give a basic shell to all of these NPCs. Give them a name. And give them a general appearance and give them a little bit of a personality, how they're going to interact with the party. And everything else you can build on the fly as your party interacts with them. And then if the party doesn't interact with them, you don't have to worry about it. Right. So I think we've got our town set up. We've got our NPCs. Uh, This goes a really long way. We are still working on drafting together. Hopefully fairly soon we'll start having our showcase for the characters that we made, our first four characters, which was our first several episodes. So things are coming along quite nicely. We're getting really excited to start bringing some more stuff out. I think we're coming along pretty good. I like where we're headed. I think that's going to do it for this episode. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas that you want us to run with, send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or a direct message through Twitter at UCT Homebrew. If we like what you send us, it might make it into a future episode. Also, you can find our, our podcast. Word of mouth is a really big thing for us, so feel free to like, comment, subscribe on the podcast. You can find us anywhere you download your podcasts. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. 
If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.